Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how the word of the Lord came to Abraham after he faced many battles and was in a shattered state. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org or on iTunes. Tom Cantor's got an incredible offer for you this month. We've got three books that are combined into one for our monthly resource in the month of January. The three books are Frequently Asked Questions by Jewish People, Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and How a Jew Came to Know and Put His Trust in the Jewish Messiah, Tom Cantor's Testimony. All three put into one monthly resource, and it's yours for a donation of support of $30 or more. We'll send you this book, three books into one. It's our January resource, and we do have limited quantities. So call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051, or you can go online to our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's Tom Cantor as we study the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. So before we start, let's look to God. Father, we thank you so much that the Lord gave the word. Lord, we're so appreciative to the fact that you have, Lord, you've revealed who you are in all of your glory this word and we pray that we that our eyes might be touched this morning so we can see you in Jesus name amen now Genesis chapter 14 verse 21 and the king of Sodom said unto Abram give me the persons and take the goods to thyself and Abram said to the king of Sodom I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord the most high God the possessor of heaven and earth that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet and that I will not take anything that is thine lest thou should say I have made Abram rich Save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me and are Eshkol and Mamre. Let them take their portion. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That's our verse for today. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So now, as we come to chapter 15, we see in Abraham, here, it's very confusing because his name starts off Abram, and then it gets changed to Abraham. But, you know, I always refer to him as Abraham, but anyway, it doesn't matter. I have friends named Abram, and so there, it's okay. But anyway, we come here in, in chapter 15, and we find an Abraham that is absolutely exhausted. He's drained out. He's faced one battle after another, and he's just flat out right worn out and he's faced the battle of the five kings and he's fought hard in that battle and in genesis 14 17 that was called the slaughter and that gives you an image of what he went through of kedoloermer and he's walked back all this distance from syria from the golan heights all the way back down there in the plain of mamre and abraham has went through all of that and then he faced the temptation of this making an allegiance, as we've read here, over wealth with the king of Sodom, where he said in verse 21, the king of Sodom says, makes this proposal to Abram, he says to him, give me the persons, you take the gifts, give me and take. And Abram stood firm, Abraham stood firm against that temptation, and with that same hand that he had fought against the king's In the slaughter there, with that same hand, he says in verse 22, And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And he tells the king of Sodom, 
that he could look from, I don't know if Abraham wore a hat, I suppose he did, it's hot there. Anyway, he could look at the threads in his hat, and he could look at the shoelaces on his feet, and he said to the king of Sodom, there is no way, there is no way that I'm going to make it so that you, the king of Sodom, would be able to say to me, oh, that, that thread in your hat came from me, or that shoelace came from me. He said, there's no way I'm going to make it so that you could say I made Abraham rich. And this was so very vastly important to Abraham that he was not going to give in any way bragging rights for the king of Sodom. And Abraham knew that God was the God who had said in Leviticus 27, Sanctify yourselves therefore and be ye holy for I am holy. I am the Lord your God. And Abraham wanted nothing to do with that gay lifestyle of the king of Sodom. And so he stood alone, and it cost Abraham something. It cost him a lot. It wasn't just a stand that didn't carry a price tag along with it. This cost Abraham. It cost him everything he battled for. It cost him the whole booty of the war that he had fought for. It cost him all the persons that he had captured that could have become a part of Abraham's household. It cost him all the wealth that he had brought back. And that was a very significant sacrifice for Abraham. And every stand for God that a person takes has a price tag that goes along with it. Paul faced that cost. Paul faced that price tag. And he talked about it in Philippians 3, 7 when he said, The things that were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He said, doubtless, he said, he counts all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus as Lord. For whom, he, Paul said, he suffered. He had already done that. He had suffered the loss of all things. And in viewing back of what he lost, he said, I count them as refuse, as dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And then he said that I may know him. That I, I want to know, as he put it, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable unto his death. So in that verse, Paul was explained to us how he was put in the position of having to choose. Choose between many things and the excellency, as he called it, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And he had to choose that. And he, he had to choose between the Lord Jesus Christ and his family, like I did, like many people did. So his family could have put it to Paul. said, Paul, a member of the family, a member of this Jewish family, is he that important to you, Paul? Are you really willing to give up your family? Your family, Paul, what they call in Yiddish, mishpecha, it says, Paul, are you willing to give that up? You willing to give it up, Paul? Give it all up? For who? For this Christ Jesus, your Lord? Is it really worth it, Paul, your family? And he had to choose between his friends and his countrymen and the Lord Jesus Christ. And your position, Paul, as a Jew, as good standing in this community, your Jewish community, you're willing to give it all up, Paul. You're willing to give up your business connections that come through your community, your possessions that come from your business. Give it all up, Paul. For who? For what? For this Christ Jesus, your Lord? You're really willing to, Paul? He found himself in his synagogue and with the prospect of being excommunicated from his synagogue and his good standing there. 
Same question. And to all of those questions, Paul says, yes, 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 a thousand times, yes, I would do it again. As he put it, yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency, he calls it, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered. And when he says that, he's saying it, and I gladly suffered it, and I gladly will suffer it again, the loss of all things, to count them but dung that I may win Christ. So that's what Paul was saying there. Was it worth it? Was it really worth it? Yes, Paul says, it was so worth it. And so it was so wonderful to him, Paul. Just the words were like music to his ears when he thinks and he says that I may know him. The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I want to know everything there is about him. I want to know that power that he experienced when he was resurrected from the dead. I want to know the sufferings that he did in such a way that I want to be able to suffer like he suffered. I want to be made conformable unto his death. I want to, oh, that I could die the way he died. That's what he's talking about. He said, I just can't get enough. I can't get enough of the Lord Jesus Christ that I may know him. And so all those gains that I had gotten realize they're a loss, he says, if I keep them. And that's the way Abraham is. Abraham looks at all those gains, and already he could hear the king of Sodom say, Oh, I made you rich. I made you rich, Abraham. And he said, Nothing to do with it. Those are lost. Abraham saw that wealth that he had brought back from the slaughter there. He saw that as a bridge a bridge of an alliance between the king of Sodom and Abraham. And Abraham said, burn the bridge, burn the bridge, take it all, I want nothing from it. And that was the stand he took, and that cost him something that was a sizable cost to Abraham. Now, when a believer does that, he takes his stand, he pays the price. As he does, others see it, and God sees it too. And Abraham was human. And Abraham felt the loss. I mean, it's real easy to stand there for that moment and say, take it all, when the adrenaline is rushing. But when it's all being taken away and you realize, I don't have it anymore, there's naturally an emptiness, a feeling of loss inside. And he felt that. And then he also felt fear. Abraham felt fear because of what's going to happen to him now. I mean, as we come to chapter 15, verse 1, this is what's going on inside Abraham's heart. This is what's cooking inside Abraham. This is what's going on. Abraham is feeling the loss of what he has just given up, and he's feeling the fear over what is going to happen to him. What is going to happen to me? What's going to become of me? Abraham has just gotten back from a mission of slaughtering Cater Loermer and the many kings, the five kings, that were aligned with him. And that's one thing that Abraham's done. And the second thing, as he has arrived back, Abraham has just spit on a proposal of an alliance between the king of Sodom, and he's given up all the men that he brought back to the king of Sodom. And that would have made Abraham's army just a little larger than simply 400 men. That's what he started off. Who knows if he even had 400 men by the time he got back. I mean, he might have lost some. And all these actions that Abraham's doing is not exactly making friends, you know. And Abraham is not exactly making himself in a secure position. And naturally, there's a side in Abraham that's saying, what am I doing? Am I out of my mind? It's a dangerous world out there. And why am I giving up all that I need to protect myself? I'm giving up wealth that could be used to protect myself. I'm giving up people that could be used to protect myself. And that's the condition of our hero here as we come, as we enter into verse 1. 
That's why these words are so very important. Verse 1, when we read the first words there, first three words, it says, after these things. Those are very important words. That's the first time in the Bible that we have this phrase, after these things. We have it many times after this, but this is the first time. And they're written there, after these things, to emphasize to us just how important it is for us to see clearly the these things that it's talking about. That these things are Abraham's empty feeling of loss from having given up the gains and the captives of war. That these things are Abraham's fear of what's going to happen to him now that he's made so many enemies. And those three words, after these things, show us how God was watching Abraham very carefully and also shows us how God watches over us very carefully. He sees the emptiness that we feel in our hearts that Abraham felt in his heart when there is a loss. He sees the fear that Abraham felt in his heart. He sees the fear that we feel in our hearts as Abraham had more and more enemies. And God does something about it. And this is the wonderful nature and the wonderful part of God. He doesn't just observe it. He does something. And then it says there, the word of the Lord came unto Abram. That's what he did. The word of the Lord came to Abram. This is a very important phrase. The word of the Lord came. It's, again, the first time it's used in the Bible, this phrase appears many, many times afterward. But the Hebrew word here for the word of the Lord is the word debar. That's the word for the word, the word of the Lord, debar. And again, this verse is the first time that this word appears in the Bible. It's a very common word in Hebrew. It appears over 1,400 times throughout the Bible, this word debar. And debar word doesn't mean the part of a sentence, like, you know, word, like the, and, and those words, you know. That's not what it means. But it has many, many meanings. And, for example, it can mean matters or things. As a matter of fact, it's used actually before this, where it says, the word of the Lord came. It says, after these things, that's debar, debarim. So it says, after these things, the word of the Lord, debar, came from God to Abraham. So it can mean things or it can mean events, but it also can mean as it is, and that's what it means in the first use here, after these things, but it also can mean a very specific message, like when the king came to the prophet Jeremiah and says, is there a word from the Lord? That's the debar. And so it can mean a message And that's the word that's used here. That's the meaning of the word that's used here. Very important. As a matter of fact, it's the word that starts off the whole book of Deuteronomy. These are the sayings, it says. I think it's the sayings or the words maybe. But it's the word debar, debarim for plural. And so, you know, the Jewish people don't call the book of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy because Jewish people think that's too many syllables. It's a lot of syllables, and nobody knows what it means anyways. But the Jewish people call the book of Deuteronomy, Debarim, the sayings. Why? Because it's the first word that appears in the book, and they didn't have to think of a title that way, see? So (laughs) that's why it's called that. Well, it's better than Shmot, which means the plural for names, which is the first word in the book of Exodus. These are the names, but anyway, very clever names and titles. All right, so verse 1 is where God sends a Debar, a special message to Abraham. And we read these words, the word of the Lord came unto Abram. Now, in those words, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram, we see a pattern, a pattern for God. 
It's a pattern for how God helps us in our lives. The experience, we, the experience that Abraham had, he had his own particular these things. It was a slaughter, it was the king of Sodom, and so forth. He had a lot of things to deal with. But we have our own these things. We have our own issues that we have to deal with. And we experience, like Abraham, also the emptiness of the feeling of loss and the fear of now what's going to happen to me. And what do we do for our own after these things? We see in these words what we should do. Because after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram. So what do we do? We turn to the book. We turn to the book that God uses to send us the special debar for us, the special message to us. Tom, today you mentioned in our teaching today, Philippians 3, 9, where Paul the Apostle wanted to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, which is of the law, but through faith of Christ. Righteousness which is of God by faith. Now Noah demonstrated how he believed God and was saved by his faith and not by his works. And building an ark took a lot of time. In fact, if he had not have done that, he would have not been saved from the coming flood. So when the Bible says that we're not saved by works, what is the relationship between faith and works. Excellent point. You know, that's very true, that if Noah didn't do the work, he wouldn't have been saved, so that the argument is that, well, then Noah was saved by works. No, Noah was saved by faith, because why did Noah build that ark? Was that an idea that came into Noah's head? He woke up one morning and he says, you know what? I think there's going to be a flood, and I think I got a great idea I'm going to build an ark. Not at all. What happened was that God came to Noah and said, Noah, there's going to be a great flood, and I am commanding you to build the ark. Now, Noah could have sat there and says, yeah, I believe you, God, but you know, I'm not going to build the ark. Then he wouldn't have been saved. So in essence, Noah was saved by his faith, but then the work was consequential to his faith. It was only because Noah believed God and that he obeyed God and built the ark. It wasn't the other way around where Noah built the ark, came to God and said, look, God, I built this ark. This is all my idea. And I'm going to build this ark and I'm going to save myself. No, God said, God, in essence, put a test in front of Noah. And what was the test? The test was simply, Noah, do you believe me? If you believe me, build this ark. Now, that brings clarity to what James says in James two seventeen through 18 when he says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Think about that. If Noah was sitting there and God said to Noah, Noah, all the work, all the earth has corrupted themselves before me. Every thought of the imagination of his heart is only evil continually. And uh, he goes on and he says, I've had it and I'm going to destroy the earth. And, and Noah says, yeah, I really believe that, God. And then God says, and Noah, you have found faithful and I want you to go ahead and build this ark. And then Noah sits there and he says, says, you know what? I really believe God, but I'm not going to build the ark. Noah would have faith, but he wouldn't have works. And he literally would have been dead because he would have been swept away in the flood. So in other words, the works comes as a consequence to the faith. It comes as an obedience to God. That's what God, that's what James is saying here. If you have faith, but you don't obey God, if God says, God says, I save you from your sins. I want you to turn from your sins. I want you to repent from your sins. And you don't make one effort to repent and turn from your sins. That's faith without works. That's dead. 
So in other words, James says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, it's showing faith by works. That's why in Romans 10, 9, when it says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So in other words, if you really believe in your heart that God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, then you will say so. And you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You will say, the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He's my God. He is God. He died on a cross for my sins. I, and you will tell people that. Why do you tell? Because the consequence of believing is confessing. The consequence of having faith is to loose the mouth where the mouth speaks. Now, you could say, confessing with the mouth is the Lord Jesus is a work. And so that's goes back to James. Look, if you only believe in your heart, but you're frozen at the tongue, then you see you've got dead faith. But God says, if you really believe in your heart, then the consequence of that is that you will you will speak. In other words, when the Lord Jesus Christ was putting this all on the line, he said in Matthew 10, 32 through 33, whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. So in other words, he's putting it on to a very individual basis. It's all about him and him and him. And he says, if you really believe that I am God, that I am the Savior, then you will confess me before men. That will be the demonstration of your faith. Your faith is what God is imputing to you for righteousness. So if you want to say that, faith saves, or God sees faith, and then he saves. But to show that it's really genuine faith, in other words, it's not dead faith, as James says, then you will confess me before men. You will go to your friends, and you will say, you know who's more important than my friends? God. Therefore, I'm going to confess to my friends, even if they say sayonara to you, even if they do that, I'm going to confess the Lord Jesus Christ to my friends, and then God says, that's a genuine faith, and I'll confess you, the Lord Jesus says, also before my Father, which is in heaven. But on the other hand, if a person believes, but he denies them before men, it's not a genuine faith. It's not a faith which has really gripped the heart. And so he says, so therefore he says, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. So some people might look at the thief on the cross and say, well, what work could this man do? He was nailed to a cross. His hands were immobilized. His feet were immobilized. He was dying, and all he could do was speak. And so one of the malefactors is what it says in Luke 23, 39 through 43. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So what did this malefactor do, the saved man, the second one? Well, he they were both, maybe 
they were pals. I don't know. Maybe they were accomplices in the crime. Who knows? But anyways, there's two malefactors. They're being nailed. They're nailed to a cross. They're on either side of the Lord Jesus Christ. And two of them have made two distinct decisions. One has faith. The other doesn't. The one malefactor, he just, he, he lets go on the Lord. And he says, oh, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other who has really believed, he rebukes him. He severs his relationship with his friend. He says, no, you and I are not on the same page, and then tries to win his friend. He says, don't you fear God? Look, seeing that you're in the same condemnation, don't you see that we are indeed, we, we are indeed uh, receiving what we deserve, the due reward of our deeds? Can't you see that this man has done nothing wrong? You see, in that case, that was his work. His work was a witness. His work was a reaching out. His work was a confessing the Lord Jesus Christ before men, before his, his, uh, his, his accomplice friend there. He was doing that. And that was showing that his faith was genuine. It was demonstrating, just like Noah building the ark, this thief on the cross was also demonstrating his faith by reaching out to his friend. Because after all, if you really believe that all men are either going to heaven to hell, heaven or hell, and if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to heaven, and if they don't, then they're going to hell, then won't you, if you really sincerely believe that, reach out to your friends? like this this one man did, this thief on the cross. Won't you do that? Of course you will. And that's what he did. That was a demonstration of his faith. And what was the reward for the demonstration of his faith? The Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Thank you for listening to Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. It's your listenership and support of the Friendship with God radio program and Israel Restoration Ministries that allows us to reach over 1.5 million lost Jewish people with the gospel every year, as well as many Gentiles, not just through this radio teaching program, but through our Jewish evangelism outreaches with Israel Restoration Ministries missionaries that go door-to-door with the gospel in 18 different U.S. cities, from South America to Israel to Canada, getting the gospel out to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, if you'd like to support the gospel going out to a Jewish person that you know, you can send them a free gift from Tom Cantor. His life story on DVD and in a booklet, millions and millions of copies have gone out around the world, and you can get this copy to give to your Jewish friend or have it sent directly to them. Go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org, and get that free gift to give to your lost Jewish friend. You can also support us with a donation online. You can also get this month's resource. We have three books from Tom Cantor combined into one book, and you can get that for a donation of $30 or more. Call us today at 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening.